0: Apollo 8 uh, coming to you live from the moon. We've had to switch the TV camera. Now we showed you first a view of Earth as we've been watching it
1: for the past 16 hours. Now we're switching so that we can show you the moon. The moon is a uh, different thing to each one of us. I know my own impression is that it's a, a vast, lonely, forbidding type existence or expanse of nothing. And it certainly would not appear to be a very inviting place to to live or work. Well Frank, my thoughts were very similar. The vast loneliness up
2: here on the moon is uh, awe inspiring and it, it makes you realize just what you have back there on Earth. The Earth from here is a grand oasis of the big vastness of space. <laughs> A grand oasis, a big blue floating ball where our friends and family live, the place we call home. When astronauts look back at the Earth, they often experience something called the overview effect, where they're awestruck by its beauty.
3: What's interesting is you'll, you sometimes will note that crew, as the mission goes on, will tend to spend more time taking pictures and looking at Earth through <laughs> the cupola. Staring at the Earth for too long, is also a sign that the isolation of space might be taking its toll. So do we infer from that, that they're missing that social connection on Earth? And the other thing that you, we can conjecture on that is that there seemed to be an increase in what we might call psychological torpor. So their, their energy levels were less as time went on. So near the hmm. end of the mission, they were less active. So if they're looking more at Earth, is it because they're getting close to their mission ending? Or is it because they miss the people on Earth more as time goes on? Scientists at NASA have ranked the hazards of space travel. First on the list
2: is space radiation. Astronauts are exposed to dangerous radiation 10 times greater than what we experience on Earth. And the second most hazardous part of space travel, it's not injury, it's not disease, It's not even space aliens. It's social isolation and loneliness. Looking out at the earth and missing your people, your family, your friends, it can make you lethargic, make it difficult to concentrate. It's probably not hard for us to imagine this at all. Everyone knows the feeling of loneliness. The feeling that we're born alone, we could die alone, without our friends or family around us. You don't even have to go into space to feel it. Almost all of us felt it during COVID, even today, upwards of 60% of Americans report being lonely on a regular basis. That has consequences for our mental health, of course, but also engenders a powerful physical reaction. But why? Why would we have a physical reaction?
4: The evolutionary theory around loneliness tells us that we were designed to be social creatures that relied on each other uh, for a survival advantage. That's Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General of the United States, talking to NPR. Thousands of years ago, when we were hunter-gatherers on the tundra, being together in trusted relationships increased the chances that we could pool our food and all have some food day to day as opposed to starving. It made it more likely that we could protect ourselves from predators because we could take turns, uh, taking watch at night, for example. When we were separated from each other, that placed us in a state of danger. And that danger resonated through our body in the form of a stress state uh, that was marked uh, by uh, an outflow of stress hormones, which in the short term could be beneficial because they could focus your mind and ensure that you could react quickly if a predator was indeed behind you. But in the long term, that stress state can be harmful.
2: And when you transport forward to the
4: modern day? What you find is that even though our circumstances have changed dramatically from those hunter-gatherer days, that our bodies are not so different, and the way our nervous system reacts to being separated from people, the way we react to feeling lonely is remarkably similar in terms of experiencing an elevated stress state. But if that feeling persists for a long period of time, if it becomes chronic, the stress that comes with it can ultimately lead to higher levels of inflammation in our body and increase our risk uh, for chronic illnesses.
2: Loneliness can create an elevated stress state that can literally make us sick. A
5: new report from his office finds loneliness can have profound effects on mental health as well as heart disease, stroke, and dementia. It tracks a decline in social connections and links all of this to billions of dollars in healthcare
2: Earlier this year, after working with researchers who have been studying loneliness for decades, Vivek Murthy released this advisory. He and his team found that social isolation increases the risk of premature mortality by as much as 30%. That means for the tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions who struggle with loneliness and social isolation, your chance at a longer, healthier life just went down.
4: And the amount of shortening or the mortality impact seems to be similar to smoking 15 cigarettes a day and even greater than the mortality impact that you see from obesity or sedentary living. You know, I think about this often because as a Surgeon General, I and my predecessors spent a significant amount of time in terms of speeches, reports, uh, and other kinds of campaigns addressing the issues of smoking and obesity and sedentary living. Yet it had not occurred to me until I heard these stories from around the country and delved into the research that perhaps loneliness was an equally challenging issue that was a threat to our health.
2: It's a quintessentially American concept to think that we can solve for healthy longevity through the foods we eat, the exercise we do, even the pharmaceuticals we swallow. But it turns out we're all astronauts, floating in an increasingly atomized and disconnected world, and loneliness and social connection is a problem we have to solve together. From the Stanford Center on Longevity, this is Century Lives, a Lifetime of Inequality. I'm your host, Ken Stern. Support for this podcast comes from the National Council on Aging, the national voice working to ensure that every person can age with health, financial security, and dignity. Learn more at ncoa.org. And from AARP, the nation's largest nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to empowering people 50 and older to choose how they live as they age. To find out more, visit aarp.org. Today, we're going to explore why loneliness and isolation have been increasing over the last 30 years, affecting more and more of us, young as well as old. We'll discover who is most vulnerable to the physical effects of social isolation, and I'll take a journey to connect with six new friends in my neighborhood.
5: Okay, I'm gonna give you a quiz, and it's called the UCLA Loneliness Scale. I'm gonna ask you about eight questions, and you will tell me, do you often, sometimes, rarely, or never feel these ways?
1: Okay.
2: My producer, Carrie Thompson, is helping me figure out where I stand on the spectrum of loneliness.
5: My first question is, I am unhappy doing so many things alone. Would you say that's never, rarely, sometimes, or
2: always? Rarely. The Loneliness Scale was developed by a UCLA psychologist, Daniel Russell, in 1996. He created it to find out how often a person feels disconnected from others.
5: You get a number score for each answer, FYI. Yep. Okay, the second question is, I have nobody to talk to. Sometimes.
6: Do you
2: want me to explain any of the answers? Or, or you just uh, want to sure, me...
5: yeah. Explain the answer.
2: Yeah. So uh, I'm alone for a lot of the day. I, I don't actually mm-hmm. mind that, but I'm by myself uh, at home working. There's no one else here. Um, and sometimes feels lonely. It frequently feels lonely. Um Not an oppressive way, but uh, the absence of people around me who I can't just sort of... When I talk to people, it's always for a purpose, right? I don't get to shoot the shit. I don't have any sort of casual interactions. I miss that. I work remotely by myself, as do millions of others. This is partly due to the change in our lives since COVID, but it's really part of a larger structural change in how we live, and has made us acutely aware of our isolation.
4: Think about the fact that in the last few decades, we've just lived through a dramatic pace of change. We move more, we change jobs more often. We're living with technology that has profoundly changed how we interact with each other, how we talk to each other. And we just went through a pandemic as well. But I think it's important also to recognize that most of this struggle is happening silently. They, they worry that saying I'm lonely is like saying I'm not likable. And I know this because I felt that uh, many times in my life you are not the only one and that this is a common human condition uh, and you are as worthy uh, of human connection as anyone else and that's our goal here is to build a society where we all feel deeply connected
2: okay
5: there's no one I can turn to rarely okay and I feel isolated from others sometimes okay stand by while i tally your response i'm gonna add these up i'm excited (laughs) okay so so your score is 15 and the most lonely score would have been 28 so you are pretty much kind of smack dab in the middle there
0: yeah, so first of all, I think it's good to figure out and kind of feel out where you're at on the spectrum of, of loneliness, right? So we're all somewhere on that spectrum from being, you know, not at all too highly, right? And we're probably somewhere in the middle.
2: That's Julianne holt Lundsted. She's a professor at Brigham Young University, the scientific advisor to the Surgeon General's Task Force. And she's the one who told Vivek Murthy that loneliness has the health consequences of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. She's telling me and Carrie that with a score of 15, over halfway to 28, I'm indeed somewhere in the middle. I guess I take some comfort in not coming up with a high score on a test like this. But in reality, the loneliness score wasn't really designed for people like me. It was originally created to provide data on more vulnerable groups. People below the poverty line, single mothers, or those who had just immigrated to the US researchers want to know if poverty causes loneliness or was it the other way around?
0: One of the things that that brings up is also that there are, sadly, disparities. And one of the That's things right. that we um, consistently find is that um, people who report greater financial concerns also report greater severity of loneliness.
2: Julianne holt Lundstead.
0: One of the things that we also see is that not all neighborhoods um, or communities have equal kinds of parks. And, you know, some some communities um, have more green space, more parks, more libraries, um, uh, more churches. Uh, I mean, you name it. And other neighborhoods are more impoverished and don't have those kinds of places to gather. But also their, their sidewalks may not be as well maintained. And so those with disabilities are, are less able to get out. And so we have a lot of disparities in, in our communities. And so we need to also think about how we can reckon with this um, in recognizing the kinds of factors that contribute to isolation and loneliness.
2: So poverty makes you vulnerable. But who else is most affected by this loneliness epidemic?
4: It turns out that one in two adults report measurable levels of loneliness. And the group that's actually most lonely in our population are actually young people, despite how connected they may be by technology. We're living with technology that has profoundly changed how we interact with each other, how we talk to each other.
2: Young people in their late teens and 20s, many of whom connect regularly on social media, report feeling lonely. Over the last 30 years, Americans' number of close friends has dropped precipitously. In 1990, 33% of Americans reported that they had 10 or more close friends. In 2021, that figure had declined to just 13%. And perhaps most ominously, the number of people who reported having no close friends has quadrupled, from 3 to 12%. Well,
4: we know that young people spend a lot of time online. You know, all of us do. That is time that's taken away from in-person interaction. And I think that's had a real consequence for the mental health of children because we know that in-person interaction is what we have evolved for over thousands of years. We've learned, evolved to interpret not just the content of what someone's saying, but also the sound of their voice and their body language. And when we lose a lot of that in text-based interactions, then that impacts the strength of the connections that we can form.
2: It's tempting to place the blame squarely on technology, a notion hard to avoid when I see my teenage son swallowed up by his phone for hours at a time. But Julianne holt Lundsted wants to give us a longer view of the epidemic of loneliness.
0: You know, it's, it's probably really challenging and, and difficult to pinpoint, you know, any one factor. Um, but we have tried to look at several trends to give us clues on um, how to make sense of this and There's been data that's been collected over the past two decades from the American Time Use Survey. And what this showed was that Americans are spending um, more time um, isolated or in isolation, spending less time with family, both inside and outside the home, less time with um, friends, less time with others. Um, And that this um, has has been, you know, these trends have been building over the past um, couple decades.
2: A situation made even more problematic when you realize that loneliness can make us feel alienated and left out. To fill that void, some of us look for community in the isolated worlds of cable television, social media, and polarizing politics. Isolation can lead to outrage, suicide, and even violence. That's how Senator Chris Murphy sees it.
3: I really think loneliness is an enormous problem in this country. The data tells us that. Today, 30% of Americans feel intense loneliness. 10% 30 years ago, 60% of teenagers feel lonely. Murphy
2: thinks that loneliness is driving Americans to dark, dangerous places. So in July of this year, he introduced legislation to create a national strategy to combat America's epidemic of loneliness and promote social connection
3: in our communities. There's something about online existence that actually is driving feelings of isolation and the withering away of communities, of community institutions, of downtowns. All of those opportunities we used to have to connect with human beings in person, they're gone. We now buy our groceries, you know, and we do our shopping online. Um, We've got to talk about this epidemic of isolation and loneliness. And yes, I do think that Republicans and Democrats both agree that this is a problem. But
2: can you legislate a reduction in loneliness? Many of us think that loneliness is a personal issue solved by self-help, not by a government or a corporation. But Eddie Garcia, the founder of the Foundation for Social Connection, would disagree.
7: There's organizational impacts and and levers that can be pulled. So where do we live, work, and play? And how do those organizations and stakeholders have a role to play in building uh, connection? And then there's these larger policy reforms that can be addressed. So from a societal level. So we're looking at this sort of multi-tiered, multi-level approach to addressing social connection.
2: Eric Kleinenberg, a professor at NYU and the author of Going It Alone, agrees with Garcia that loneliness is a problem that needs to be tackled on a societal level, especially for older people.
8: There are a number of people, record numbers of people who are aging alone, and we haven't really figured out how to make sure that people who age alone uh, are connected to their neighbors, are connected to their families. And here's an area where the United States really is a laggard compared to other countries that are experimenting with new kinds of housing that that, keep people uh, uh, in, in situations where they can be supported and supportive of one another.
2: It's true that other countries are running ahead of the United States. The UK and Japan have both appointed ministers of loneliness. And other countries have begun to rethink how people live in order to keep an aging population active, engaged, and vital. Singapore has invested heavily in intergenerational housing complexes and encouraged children to stay connected with their parents, going as far as offering a tax incentive should they move within a kilometer of their parents. Barcelona has begun to reorganize its neighborhoods around the concept of superblocks that are closed to vehicular traffic and designed to encourage walking and community involvement. These concepts are reshaping how seniors live and how they can stay better connected to family, friends, and community. The U.S. system is rather different. Here's Eric Kleinenberg again.
8: I think every American family that has uh, an older person who's, who's aging and aging alone, and there are a lot of us, struggle with this issue. Uh, Many people know that there is a very expensive world of assisted living complexes where quite affluent older people can be surrounded by all kinds of services and programs and it can be a pretty good experience um, for for what could be, despite what can be a difficult situation. Uh, But those assisted living complexes are just about inaccessible to everyone uh, who doesn't have a lot of money.
2: Senior isolation is a growing problem in the U.S. COVID put it on the front page and exposed the cost, but in the long term, it's not the sharp spike of the pandemic that is the central cause for concern, but the slow creep of daily loneliness and isolation. 30% of seniors in the U.S. report not having made a new friend for a decade, and you can imagine the impact of that on seniors as they leave the workforce and as long-standing friends move or pass away. And it's at least partially true for me. I'm 60, still working, and have a strong social network, but it's not a network that is being renewed or grown. I turned back to Eddie Garcia, explained that I was feeling the effects of social isolation and working at home, and wondered
7: if he had any advice for me. You're an individual within structures and communities um, and pressures that are, are coming down on you as an individual. You also have this whole world inside your brain, right, where a therapist, friends, family, um, play a role in helping you kind of figure out what is the source of your disconnection. I mean, these are different things. But again, I am not uh, a therapist. <laughs> You're not like, I am <laughs> not a
2: counselor. Well, but so so, so uh, I got that. Uh, but you did a great job there. Uh, but let me actually sort of, I'm, I'm curious whether this is what I'm going to describe to you as um, and not make this interview about me, um, my situation, which is, actually, I have a lot of friends. Um, let, me, let me sort of say that, and I have, um, love my family. Um, we still have a kid growing up. And I'm very good at actually keeping in touch with my friends who are spread across the country in some cases of the world. But I don't think I've actually made a friend in
7: 15,
2: 20 years, which is a really sort of distress. when you think about it, that's a very distressing thought.
7: I think we've certainly heard that reported that it is harder as people get into the workforce and carry on with their lives and their careers that you're meeting less people for social um, activities. But I'd say this. um, I think it's good to take stock of what is social connection um, and for people to do that for themselves. Do you have the various types of relationships that you need to feel that you have a well-rounded support group? So, if you get hurt, do you have someone that you can call to drive you to the ER? Other data points I can share there's a next door uh, study that shows that knowing six of your neighbors um, increases your um, well being and ability to thrive. So, we're also encouraging people to get outside and meet your neighbors. If it's safe for you to do so, if you feel that you are safe in your community um, to do so, Go try to meet, connect with six six people in your in your community.
5: Um, so, Ken, I have a question then for you about your neighbors. How many of your neighbors do you know well enough so that you could call on someone if you needed something? You know the, the study that Eddie Garcia mentioned. Um, what's your neighbor count?
2: Yeah, that'd be pretty close to zero, I think. Um, Zero
5: neighbors that you yeah, can call on.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, there are people I know, and if in a pinch, I could definitely go knock on their door. I don't have any of their phone numbers. Um, hmm. So, yeah, I, I don't have a connected neighborhood for me, which is odd because it's a very communal neighborhood. So it sort of speaks to, to me.
5: Wow. So I think you should meet some of your neighbors.
2: Um, I think I should, too.
5: So I've done a little research on this, and... There is actually something called Mount Pleasant Village. They also go on walks together as a group.
2: Oh, Um, I like walking. Yeah, because you're like
5: a, yeah, you got a Fitbit. You like, you average at least 10,000 steps a day, right? I do. I think you should join them this Friday. What do you think?
2: All right. I'm I'm game for that. Um, Okay, cool. Where where do we go walking?
5: This Friday, they seem to be walking through the zoo. No, all right.
2: National Zoo, decent some pandas. All right, all right, let's do it. All right.
5: Okay, sounds good. Tell us what we're doing, Ken.
2: Uh, well, right now we're walking down my street to meet up people from Mount Pleasant Village to go for a morning walk and make new friends.
5: You don't know any of these people, right? I don't know.
2: I, as far as I know, I don't know any of these people.
5: Okay. None of the other walking people are here.
2: Well, there's someone behind us who could be a part of the group. Oh, okay. I know. Okay. Hello, Marianne. Hi, I'm Ken.
8: Nice to meet you, Ken. I'm Carrie, yes. and this is John Stewart, who's in the group. Hey, John. I'm Ken.
2: So, can you tell us? Hi, Louise. I'm Ken. And this is Carrie.
5: Hi, Ken and Carrie.
2: Uh, hey. So, I take it you live in Mount Pleasant? I'm, I'm on Hobart Street. This the Street. first
5: time you're coming on our walking group. Yes, first oh, time. Okay. Yeah. Maybe you'll get to like it and want to join us. It's sort of easier if you know that people are waiting for you. Yeah.
8: Yeah. yeah so, I'm nominally the leader of the group. So, if I don't see somebody for a few days, you know, a few walks. I'll, get into, I'll email them and yeah. see. are you okay? There's one gentleman who has really slowed down. I think he's closer to 80. And when he walks with us, he frequently lags behind. So we'll, we'll check for him, like make sure he's okay. If we don't see him, I'll go to his house and see, is he okay? And I think I'm not the only one who would do that. Other people in the group, you know, worry about each other if we don't see each other. And I was also saying, if somebody's having a medical issue, needs a ride to the doctors or, you know, whatever, people in the group will jump in to help. So, so nice meeting you. So nice to meet you. Louise, so, John, nice to so meet, nice. meet you. Okay.
2: Yeah, I'll, see, I'll see you both well, around. All right. Person. I'll see you soon. All right, bye. Thanks. Bye. As we walked back up the hill, I thought back to something Marianne told me, that she feels like it's her job to check in on people when they don't show up for the walk. What about the members of the community who don't have a Marianne? In the United States, we have a patchwork system, one that favors the wealthy and the well-connected. But that's not an ironclad rule. Even if you're of limited means, if you're in the right place, you can find a remarkable community, as we did one day at one of the oldest Hispanic nonprofit organizations in Washington, the Vida Senior Center. Carrie and I walked over to check it out.
1: Uh, the only thing that Vida uh, senior centers uh, ask are two things. First, they need to be 60 years old and older.
2: I just make the cut.
1: And the other one, they need to live in the city. Other than that, we don't ask questions, we welcome everyone.
2: 95% of the population that Vida serves in the Adams Morgan area are Hispanic low income seniors. Maria Teresa McPhail, the director of the Vita Senior Center, has taken time out of her day to give us a tour through the maze-like rooms of Vita. As we walk, the wild pulsing music gets louder and louder. Yes, it's the Fiesta Seminal, the weekly dance party, and we've been pulled out onto the dance floor as guests of honor. And that's not your average two-step. There's some serious moving and shaking going on. And I'm at a serious disadvantage because I only sometimes move and rarely shake. Terry does much better. Teresa comes to our rescue and we end the tour in her office. I wanted to know what makes people come to VIDA.
1: I think it's the loneliness, the isolation, and more specifically is the need. Because there is a lot of need that they have, you know, um, there is a lot of um, seniors that they don't have anything. They have worked their entire life and then they are here without nothing.
2: Do you have a sense of the, over the course of the last half century whether the loneliness challenge for seniors has gotten harder?
1: Yes, definitely. I think that with technology people have become more busy you know, and the crisis uh, when it comes to recession, economical, socio-economical aspect, for those that they don't have family, in addition to isolation, there is more challenges that has become to them. It is impossible for a senior to pay rent now. Housing is a crisis. Mental health is a crisis. A lot of the seniors, they don't, they don't have any help in that area, so it has become difficult. Some of them don't even know that uh, centers like this exist.
2: Yeah. So uh, I'm curious. So we, we've we talked to experts who, who tell us about the relationship between loneliness and physical health, but they're talking in big, broad strokes, population. I'm curious, you're a frontline front provider. Do you see uh, the relationship between loneliness and seniors' physical health?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And this is tough for me because they don't have insurance and they are isolated at home and this is when their mental health goes down and then physical health gets impacted. Because it has to be an ecosystem, right? You cannot be mentally stable if you don't have socio-economical things set up. You cannot have mental health if housing you don't know how you're gonna pay rent next month and you have to decide should I buy food or should I pay my rent. So this is our senior so absolutely that's completely linked. There are many social determinants of health that will impact the whole being of them.
2: As we get up to leave, we couldn't help but notice that the dance party scheduled to end an hour ago was still in full swing. Still going. That's yeah.
5: crazy. We can take that amazing. Okay. So nice, nice to meet you. Too. Too. Thank, thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. Nice to meet a you. Thank you. Night. You too. I love
2: you. We walked out into the hot summer day, amazed by the dedication of Teresa and her team. Thinking how lucky this community is to have such a vital organization. And I was inspired to work on my neighbor count.
5: Good. Alright, no, so, Ken. can. Yeah, so uh, this is your second trip to the walking group. Yeah. You feel like how, do you feel like you know these people?
2: No, I actually saw... So I saw someone on the street. Yeah. And I waved to them. One person, I think Marianne recognized me, and waved back. So I was okay. like... Well, I sort of very, very tentatively sort of raised my hand, because I wasn't really sure it was them. But, yeah. but it was. And then they all steamed by me without recognizing Did, me. Except for I, Marianne, I
5: think. Marianne recognized you. Yeah.
2: Too. I think she kind of wagged her finger at me like I was <laughs> I was supposed to be with them, and wasn't. So... We're taking the same route through the zoo, and today we meet a new neighbor.
6: My name is Barbara Churchill. Um, I've lived in Mount Pleasant since uh, 2011.
2: As we walk, Barbara tells us her
6: story. My husband, of almost 30, you know we've been together almost 30 years, uh, got cancer and uh, went through two years of chemo. And when he died, I really went through, you know, a lot of grief. Really almost had never lived alone. So that was a huge change for me. I think the loneliness was really so difficult for me to deal with. I felt like I was sleeping more than I should. I felt that I was really, you know, sleeping sometimes 10 hours, you know. Um, I felt that it was difficult to, um, because I wasn't really exercising as much as I I should have been I wouldn't get really that sleepy at night you know just that feeling of what the sort of sense of what's the point I'm feeling anxious about not being able to sleep once I get in bed you know it was sort of those feelings of loneliness and just that sort of sense that I haven't seen anybody face to face in a couple of days and I know that's so not me You know, so can I just ask you about that? Was it hard thinking about like, what am I going to do next? Oh yeah, Uh, it was very hard. And we both had had to retire because of his cancer. I had to retire to take care of him. He had to retire because, of course, he was too sick to work. So I thought, well, obviously, no one can make anything change except myself. So um, I started becoming more active in the village. I started going on the walks in the morning and uh, going to some other activities. And I kept on sort of meeting people that would give me ideas about doing other things. And that was so helpful because I didn't have to always rely on creating an experience to be with people. I had things on my schedule. You know, I didn't have to call a friend and say, are you available to go for a walk? I had a walk. You know, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Didn't have to do anything but just show up.
2: All the pieces have come together for Barbara. She was able to fight debilitating loneliness when her husband died by connecting to an organization that was nurtured by the community. And it wasn't just walking. It was yoga groups and leadership groups and fundraising. Her days have become filled with friends and purpose. It reflects to a certain degree that I live in an American equivalent of a Barcelona superblock a walkable, connected, intergenerational community, but one that's increasingly rare in the U.S. But Carrie wanted to know what we had set out to discover.
5: Okay, so Ken, would you consider Barbara a friend or anyone else in the walking group?
2: Um, so I took a lot from Barbara's uh, experiences um, uh, and what it's meant to her. But on the downside, I mean, I, th- I feel like it's still at a different stage of my life. Um, than them, even if we're not that many, you know, only a few years apart in age, that I might be better off in a pickleball league. Actually, you know, shortly after that, I, I went watch a football game with some friends, uh, friends of mine from college, actually, and uh, one of the, one of my friends told me that she was learning to play pickleball for the exact same reasons. Um, she just started to take pickleball lessons because she could see the opportunity to build relationships out of it. Um, I thought. That that was a nice thing
5: well it's gonna have to be a bonus episode because we're gonna leave our story here
2: but i know i have to keep at it join a different group make an effort but what about those who don't have a group to join or a safe neighborhood to walk in so much of the story of this season is that the struggle for healthy longevity is an unequal one because we fail to invest in communities especially those without resources we've seen that in places like south phoenix and in Buffalo in the poorest neighborhoods, in communities of color, and now amongst some of our most vulnerable, such as the elderly. It is true, though, that some of our most isolated do have a chance to reconnect. The deep loneliness of space is surely tempered by the knowledge that the return to Earth will bring reconnection with family, friends, and the broader community.
8: Hey, I wanted to say a, a few words to everyone. It would Astronaut to Scott Kelly
2: talking um, to the press after spending going. nearly a year in
8: space. It's great to be back in Texas on U.S. soil. It's just an unbelievable feeling to be back here on planet Earth, back in our great country and back with all my my family and my my friends. I missed everyone very much, Uh, 340 days aboard the space station. Maybe
2: we shouldn't all count on that ticker tape parade, but we should all feel certain that society is working to connect us and support a sense of belonging and care through our most vulnerable years. Century Lives is produced by Kerry Thompson, Aaron Bump, and Camilo Garzone. Support for this podcast comes from AARP, the nation's largest nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to empowering people 50 and older to choose how they live as they age. To find out more, visit aarp.org and from the National Council on Aging, the national voice working to ensure that every person can age with health, financial security and dignity. Learn more at ncoa.org. Special thanks for this episode to NPR and the connection from WBUR. Music for this episode was provided by Ramteen Arablouei. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu.